The comments within the following podcast are those of any show hosts and not representative of any company in which the show hosts may represent. Welcome to podcast number 269 of the Technology Blog and Podcast Series. My name is Jared Reimer, and I hope that you will enjoy this podcast as much as I am putting it together for you. Segment number one deals with unified English Braille. I introduce you to this segment talking about how this was originally aired on a show called the Saturday Afternoon Hangout. It's better late than never. UEB still being adopted and changes may be made, but the general discussion is still relevant today. Augmented reality and surgery. Do you think this would be a good idea? I found a tech talk talking about this and it is quite interesting in my opinion. Somebody was able to go in and look at a particular surgery in progress and give feedback. The video does have some gruesome images, but I think the audio is well worth the listen. How do you think something like fake handbags funnel crime? I introduced this interesting TED Talk, and it is done by somebody who has done investigating of these things. Fake items. Finally, a segment talking about whether Alexa is just a blindness tool? I don't think so. I think everybody can benefit from it. I talk a little bit about the article that I have already posted on the tech blog earlier this year. Contact information is at the end of the podcast, and I hope that each and every one of you enjoy this podcast as much as I have putting it together. I'll find other interesting articles to talk about, and who knows, maybe people will submit content for future podcasts. We'll just have to wait and see. But for now, let's get started with our introduction to our UEB discussion. Right now, on the Technology Blog and Podcast, this is podcast number 269. My name is Jared Reimer. Honey.
Welcome to podcast number 269. I'm going to go ahead and start this program with something from 2017 that needed to be played at some point. And of course, I didn't do it in 2017. It is a 15-minute piece we did on the now-defunct Saturday Afternoon Hangout talking about the Unified English Braille Code. And uh, on this program, we had several different people on it. And... we had an interesting discussion on UEB. And for those who are new to UEB, it is the Unified English Braille Code, which got rid of some symbols and added a bunch of other symbols. And there is a primer out there for people who are new to the code. And... There is also a lengthy manual out there, which I was able to obtain because of my work with the Music Education Network for the Visually Impaired. And I did read a lot of that manual, and I probably should not have done it in one sitting, because it is definitely mind-boggling. The do's and don'ts and all of that. But be that as it may, uh, this first segment that you are going to hear is going to be that discussion of the Unified English Braille Code from the Saturday Afternoon Hangout. We just have that particular segment and then we'll have some other stuff here. On this podcast, I'm Jared Reimer. Let's go with that segment, shall we? This uh, topic of uh, Braille came up the other day. It turned into quite an interesting discussion. I thought we would do it here on the Saturday afternoon hangout and for uh, Menvies and... We are here to talk about Braille. And what started our conversation off the other day is we were talking about music how we learned, and how Jared and I both acquired the habit of only reading with one hand. And I thought that was only my peculiar habit, because everybody else I know reads with two hands. Jared, is there a particular reason you started just reading with one hand? I just found it to be too slow. I was like, I'm reading this, and like, I was reading aloud, and like, I think somebody's like, you know, can't you go a little faster, and... So I just dropped one hand, and I used the one, and uh, I've not really had any issues since. Until I started doing Braille music, and my teacher's like, you need to use your other hand. I don't know how to read with the other hand. Now, I haven't done it in I know. God knows how long. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know what caused me to just use one hand. I know that I was constantly told as a kid, you know, read with both hands. But I think I found it 
flow and maybe it's a spatial orientation thing because uh, one hand is supposed to be kind of out ahead of the other one guiding yep. it to the next line but yep. what i find interesting is i've heard of people using like one or two fingers to read braille i use my three middle fingers not my thumb and my pinky but my three fingers on my right hand and so I actually read faster that way than somebody reading with two hands and using like one finger or two fingers. So I, I don't know. And then it just seems like what's the point of reading with two hands when you have a braille display, which I've had one ever since, oh gosh, for about 13 years. For me, it's just, what's the point? Yeah. And then, you know, when I read, you know, the notations for what I've just taken a call for. I just read with the one hand, and if I need to advance it, I just use my right hand to do that. So, yep. I don't even read with just my right your either. Your pinky or your thumb or whatever, yeah. But I only use one finger to read. I don't use three. Okay. <clears throat> I'm just afraid. Uses... I'm just afraid what's going to happen when I can't read from it anymore. Like I, I've actually gotten injured, and then I couldn't read for a while because all I felt was a callous and I had a hard time reading for a few days when I first started learning royal music or especially last summer when I started learning notes and values I tried to learn I tried to make myself read with the left hand but it just seems so much like gibberish because I haven't done it in so long and then my hand doesn't know how to go down to the next line sometimes it went down too far sometimes it would just miss because it's so badly out of tune that wasn't my problem you know what my problem was put my hand on the right page i'm like i don't know what this says (laughs) yeah i know like check it out with your hand is like oh okay and then like they'd let me go Mm -hmm. figure it out with my reading hand and then uh, like i trained my hand i don't know if i could do that anymore though I haven't done it since. How do you, I've wondered how you retrain a hand to read once it's lost that ability. I think um, going slow, taking it one letter at a time, and training your, you know, with your one finger or your multiple fingers, however you do it. You're like, okay, this is this, and then you feel the same thing with your other hand, which is what I ended up having to do. And then over time, I was able to do it, but I couldn't for long periods of time. I got frustrated, Yeah. especially with the music. I was like, Grant, I can't do this. This is too hard for me. Yeah. Well, he's not a Braille teacher, but yet he understood that you need both hands to read Braille music, and yet I couldn't do it. <laughs> I was just like, I did it for a while. Mm-hmm. Well, I think... Um... Oh, Herbie injured a finger, had a finger slammed in the door when he was a kid. I don't think it affected his reading hand. Things can happen, and so it's it's good to know how. But it's just so strange how something can look, totally make sense to one hand, but then look like gibberish to the other. And of course, I took, you know, five grades of piano, and I finally was able to do it. But it was interesting getting my one hand back into reading for i don't know if i could do it now i mean even when i learned ueb i was reading with my one hand i didn't see why i need to read it with both right yeah even it, with well, the manual me, like, i have and the 
primer I have. Well, Braille music, I can understand the symbols just fine. It's because I didn't grow up learning Braille music along with learning to play piano, even though I had lessons for 10 years or whatever. I, It's very hard to put it all together because I learned to play by ear with my teacher going over sections of music at a time, small sections at a time, and then I would learn yep. and move on. But it's so hard to put it all to actually translate the braille that I'm reading into something musical and even though I understand the symbols but you have to count out rhythms you have to understand the signs for expression you have to it's um you got figuring signs you got intervals you got and i haven't even gotten to the keep i'm going to be finished the hadley uh, 14 lesson course which i highly recommend a braille music reading and then they have separate units after that i'm going to take the one on keyboard music i think they have another one on choral music and instrumental it's a great i had tried to learn music by myself growing up but it really helps to actually have lessons and stuff you have to turn in because then it breaks it down into chunks and yep. definitely learns a lot. And then we talked about UEB, yes. which you and I both agree suck. Well, I don't necessarily think it sucks. I kind of question the reasons for why it should have been implemented. I think... For me, learning it has been kind of fun, just because I like learning new things. But I don't, I'm not really sure that it was needed. I don't know how beneficial it's going to be. I mean, it might help with translation software programs. It might. I don't think a ton of people should have to be forced to transition. I feel like you have to relearn everything again, and that's not the right thing either. Hi, Jacob. Welcome to the panel. (laughs) (laughs) And everything's being transcribed now in UEB, so we are pretty much forced. I know at one point, Jared, you and myself and a mutual friend of ours talked about that too at one point for Menvy, so... Well, this podcast will go out to Menvy because I think it's important that, uh, you know, this is a Braille discussion. It's covering music. It's covering Braille, so... I am going to publish this on Menvy. What are your thoughts? My thoughts is I think UEB is a joke, in my opinion, to be truthfully honest with you. And the only thing I like about UEB, what's underlined, what's bolded, what's italicized, and that that's because of my HTML work. If I wasn't doing that, then I wouldn't care for it. What I personally like is the fact that I don't necessarily need to write computer braille. I understand if you're writing a really long string of text and there's no indicators, as Jared was mentioning the other night. But I like not having to, you know, switch to computer braille. Yeah, I knew the code. I also like the fact that I can use more contractions in the middle of words, you know, more use of the ED and ER and different things like that where formerly they couldn't be used. I do like the fact that words are spaced out because I think they just look better that way I for whatever aesthetically to my fingers they just look better that way i don't really have any complaints with ueb other than the fact that somehow banna had gotten more input from people and i think it's really 
a hassle for the transcribers because not only do they have to indicate bold, underline, uh, metallics, but they have to indicate colors sometimes and fonts. And my mother-in-law was telling me about that. And some of that information is just unnecessary. Colors? Uh, also, yes. Sometimes they never have to. seen any on... any symbolization for colors in the books that I've got, and I've got that that okay. uh, ABC book, not the uh, full manual, right. but the ABC manual, which covers quite really? a lot. And I didn't oh. see anything with colors, okay, or fonts. And then you were mentioning how they're going to be doing away with Nemeth, and I think that is a shame. Yeah, my understand—that's my understanding. It for more advanced. Stuff, but if they are and see, this is it, all the stuff horrible. we knew how to do as a kid. Exactly. It just doesn't. It doesn't make sense to me. That that that's what I've been trying to say for months. I even told Richard the yeah. Uh, I, that's transcriber when, when Richard I, and you and I talked about. Yeah. I brought it up to him again in November when they actually made the decision that they were going to move forward. I've been talking to him like, how are we going to learn this now? Nobody's communicated with us unless you're on the banner list, which most of the blind people aren't. No. Bad yeah. decisions, I think. Well, the big question is, is this really going to increase literacy? And I, is there really less rules for people to learn? for new braille readers and that i doubt what do you think yes yeah. i don't um i think eventually people are going to use braille for note taking they're going to use mm -hmm. the u.s code i tried reading new in braille readers new braille readers going to be taught ueb right but do you think it'll improve do you think more people will want to learn ueb do you think they'll find ueb easier Having they won't know any. Uh, they won't know any they other. They won't know any different. Yeah. Right. They the won't only know any. Are gonna know a difference are the people that have that grew up with it. People like you, myself, Jared. I try to take notes when my note taker was set to UEB, and uh -huh. then I put it in US, and boy, the translation wasn't all that great. It screwed up in spots. I wasn't writing it in UEB. So when it back translated mm -hmm. to U.S., it, in some spots, didn't know what I wanted. You know, writing UEB, I had this analogy of a dictionary. I think the largest dictionary I've seen was 72 volumes that oh, we wow. carried huh. in the resource room. Uh -huh. How about writing that in UEB? Instead of 72, it's like 100 and something. And they're saying they don't care about space now. Well, they might, as Herbie pointed out the other night, they might not care about space as much if the electronic, if they're going to electronic. But I think beginning Braille learners still do need the actual page in front of them. Yes. But they're not going to teach That's... two forms of Braille. And I hope to get somebody on the podcast that is a Braille teacher that would be able to discuss how they're going to be teaching their kids now because UEB has become the standard now. That would be interesting. That's my concern. They're going to teach them to read and write UEB while the rest of us don't have that luxury. We get to learn how to read it because we've got the major symbols on transcribers pages. So we can go look it up, go, what is this? 
and then we can sort of understand it and we know enough to read it but to write it well there is a hadley course that i took that i highly recommend it's only six lessons and it goes over the basics um, enough to be fairly proficient in reading and writing ueb i would highly recommend it also not everybody's going to want this but i kind of after reading a little bit about ueb i kind of knew the basics to start writing in it and my method what i was taking notes for someone and then i would go back look at those notes on the computer after they translated i quickly learned not to use that two contraction because of all the times i had to correct the exclamation or yep. the number sign for ble so that is one good way to kind of to break myself of the habit of using those contractions that worked really well for me but i just you know do all my notations in us because as i indicated the other day i just don't have that kind of time to be trying to right. write it in ueb and then i have to read it right back to them within 10 minutes oh i understand i'm just in yeah. case people listen to the podcast and wanted different ways to incorporate it i was just this uh turned into an interesting topic and i thought we would do this on the hangout of course i'll podcast this to you know my various podcasts and and uh, I'd be interested, I'm sure we'd both be interested in hearing any comments or feedback, contributions to the discussion, suggestions for trying to continue learning Braille music or what has helped other people learn UEB, that type of thing. So yeah. hopefully this has been an informative discussion. Absolutely. Uh, shall we end it here? That sounds good. For the podcast subscribers, is there any contact information you would like to give out to the uh, to the public? I can be reached at my station email address, which is Chanel. Well, it's C H A N E L L E at nine eight six the mix t h e m i x dot com. All right, Chanel, uh, for the podcast subscribers, thanks for uh, being on our program today. Thank you, everyone. All right, folks, so something else to talk about here. I found this talk on TED Talks of interest. And I don't think we've talked about this before. This talk talks about how two people in different parts of the country or even the world can get together to learn from each other in a surgical aspect. How augmented reality can change the future of surgery and the woman's name is Nadine Hachich Haram and uh, in the video there are images of people in surgery and they apologize for that but the audio can speak for itself she has a doctor in a different part of the country. 
showing them what they're doing with somebody's knee because I guess somebody has had an issue and they're looking to see what's up with it and hopefully that surgery went well but it can go a long way toward making sure you get the proper care I think if you have stuff available on a computer instead of relying on paper and some sort of film which may or may not be visible depending on how long it's stored I think that would be kind of cool I know that this portion of the podcast may not be for everyone but maybe it would be a benefit to someone that you know so I'm gonna go ahead and have this talk played if you want more from TED Talks, you can find TED on YouTube. And uh, I'm sure that there might be things that be of interest. But as a technological standpoint, if I were ever to go into the hospital, I would want them to do it right. And if that means using a computer to help them gauge what they're doing is correct then I'm for it and so let's hear this talk now it is 11 minutes long you're listening to the technology podcast this is podcast 269 According to the theories of human social development, we're now living through the fourth great epoch of technological advancement, the information age. Connectivity through digital technology is a modern miracle. We can say it has broken down barriers of time and space which separate people, and has created a condition for an age where information and ideas can be shared freely. But are these great accomplishments in digital technology really the end game in terms of what can be achieved? I don't think so. And today I'd like to share with you how I believe digital technology can take us to even greater heights. I'm a surgeon by profession, and as I stand here today talking to all of you, five billion people around the world lack access to safe surgical care. Five billion people. That's 70 percent of the world's population who, according to the WHO's Lancet Commission, can't even access simple surgical procedures as and when they need them. Let's zoom in on Sierra Leone, a country of six million people, where a recent study showed that there are only 10 qualified surgeons. That's one surgeon for every 600,000 people. The numbers are staggering. And we don't even need to look that far. If we look around us here in the US, a recent study reported that we need an extra 100,000 surgeons by 2030 to just keep up with the demand for routine surgical procedures. At the rate that we're going, we won't be meeting those numbers. As a surgeon, this is a global issue that bothers me. It bothers me a lot, because I've seen firsthand how lack of access to safe and affordable health care can blight the lives of ordinary people. 
If you're a patient that needs an operation and there isn't a surgeon available, you're left with some really difficult choices: to wait, to travel, or not to have an operation at all. So what's the answer? Well, part of you are carrying some of that solution with you today: a smartphone, a tablet, a computer. Because for me, digital communications technology has the power to do so much more than just to allow us to shop online, to connect through social media platforms, and to stay up to date. It has the power to help us solve some of the key issues that we face, like lack of access to vital surgical services. And today, I'd like to share with you an example of how I think we can make that possible. The history of surgery is filled with breakthroughs in how science and technology was able to help the surgeons of the day face their greatest challenges. If we go back several hundred years, an understanding of microbiology led to the development of antiseptic techniques, which played a big role in making sure patients were able to stay alive post-surgery. Fast forward a few hundred years, and we developed keyhole or arthroscopic surgery, which combines video technology and precision instruments to make surgery less invasive. And more recently. A lot of you would be aware of robotic surgery, and what robotics brings to surgery is much like modern automated machinery, ultra precision, the ability to carry out procedures at the tiniest scales with a degree of accuracy that even surpasses the human hand. But robotic surgery also introduced something else to surgery: the idea that a surgeon doesn't actually have to be standing at the patient's bedside to deliver care; that he could be looking at a screen. And instructing a robot through a computer. We call this remote surgery. It is incumbent on us to find solutions that solve these answers in a cost-effective and scalable way, so that everyone, no matter where they are in the world, can have these problems addressed. So, what if I told you that you didn't really need a million-dollar robot to provide remote surgery? That all you needed was a phone. A tablet or a computer, an internet connection, a competent colleague on the ground, and one magic ingredient: an augmented reality collaboration software. Using this augmented reality collaboration software, an expert surgeon can now virtually transport himself into any clinical setting simply by using his phone or tablet or computer, and he can visually and practically interact in an operation from start to finish. Guiding and mentoring a local doctor through the procedure step by step. Well, enough of me telling you about it. I'd now like to show you. We're now going to go live to Dr. Mark Tompkins, an orthopedic surgeon at the University of Minnesota. He's going to perform an arthroscopic surgery for us, a keyhole surgery of the knee, and I'd like to disclose that this patient has consented to having their operation streamed. I'd also like to point out that, in the interest of time, we're just going to go through the first steps, marking up the patient and just identifying a few key anatomical landmarks. Hello, Dr. Tompkins. Can you hear me? Good morning. Everyone from TED says hello. <laughs> All right, Dr. Tompkins. Let's get started. So let's start with our incisions and where we're going to make these on either side of the patellar tendon. So if you can make your incisions there and there, that should hopefully get us into the knee. All right, I'll go ahead and do one. Great. 
So we're just getting inside the joint now. So why don't we go around and have a quick look at the meniscus? Great, so we can see there's a small tear there on the meniscus, but otherwise it looks all right. And if you turn into this, head to this direction, follow my finger, let's have a quick look at the ACL and the PCL. Great, so that's your ACL there, that looks quite healthy. No problems there. So we've just identified that small meniscus tear there, but otherwise the fluid around the joint looks okay as well. All right, thank you very much, Dr. Tompkins. Thank you for your time. I'll let you continue. Have a good day. Bye. So I hope through this simple demonstration, I was able to illustrate to you just how powerful this technology can be. And I'd like to point out that I wasn't using any special equipment. It's just my laptop and a really simple webcam. We're so used to using digital technology to communicate through voice and text and video. But augmented reality can do something so much deeper. It allows two people to virtually interact in a way that mimics how they would collaborate in person. Being able to show someone what you want to do, to illustrate and demonstrate and gesture, is so much more powerful than just telling them. And it can make for such a great learning tool, because we learn better through direct experience. So how is this making a difference around the world? Well, back in my teaching hospital, we've been using this to support local district general hospitals and providing skin cancer surgery and trauma treatment. Now, patients can access care at a local level. This reduces their travel time, improves their access, and saves money. We've even started seeing its use in wound care management with nurses and in outpatient management. Most recently, and quite exciting, it was used in supporting a surgeon through a cancer removal of a kidney. And I'd like to just share with you a very quick video here. I apologize for some of the <laughs> gruesome views. Okay. Show me again. Okay. If you see here, that's the upper part, uh, this, the most outer part of your tumor. Okay. Yes. So it is three centimeters deep. So this should be three centimeters. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I so you need to cut up the 3.5 to get a negative margin. I'm going to show you anyway on the ultrasound. You tell me what to think of it. I get okay. I get We're also seeing the use of this technology at a global scale. And one of the most heartwarming stories I can recall is from the town of Trujillo, the north of Lima in Peru, where this technology was used to support the provision of cleft lip and palate surgery to children, children from poor backgrounds who didn't have access to health insurance. And in this town, there was a hospital with one surgeon working hard to provide this care, Dr. Soraya. Now, Dr. Soraya was struggling under the sheer demand of her local population, as well as the fact that she wasn't specifically trained in this procedure. And so, with the help of a charity, we were able to connect her with a cleft surgeon in California. And using this technology, he was able to guide her and her colleagues through the procedure, step by step, guiding them, training them, and teaching them. Within a few months, they were able to perform 30% more operations with less and less complications. And now, Dr. Sarai and her team can perform these operations independently, competently, and confidently. And I remember one quote from a mother who said, This technology gave my daughter her smile. For me, this is the real power of this technology. The beauty of it, it breaks boundaries. 
It transcends all technological difficulties. It connects people. It democratizes access. Wi-Fi and mobile technology are growing rapidly, and they should play a role in boosting surgical provision. We've even seen it used in conflict zones, where there's considerable risk in getting specialist surgeons to certain locations. In a world where there are more mobile devices than there are human beings, it truly has a global reach. Of course, we've still got a long way before we can solve the problem of getting surgery to five billion people, and unfortunately, some people still don't have access to internet. But things are rapidly moving in the right direction. The potential for change is there. My team and I are growing our global footprint, and we're just starting to see the potential of this technology. Through digital technology, through simple everyday devices that we take for granted, through devices of the future, we can really do miraculous things. Thank you. It has a great technological aspect to a very big problem, and sadly, I don't know what we can do about it. In fact, this has been a big problem for many, many years, and I'm talking about fake things now. I don't know how many people we have on this particular podcast listening, and I'm trying to grow the listenership by a lot in different places, such as various telephone lines that might attract people listening. And so... Here comes a topic that they might not be aware of that maybe I've touched on this podcast in the past. Maybe I have not. Now, I remember many, many years ago getting email for Viagra. And Viagra is a pill that you would take to get hard for a woman okay I would click on these links I'm like let's see I don't need it myself but I want to see where it goes and so I would click on the link and I saw that it was not a secure website I'm like okay I'm not buying anything but let's see what's here but I looked at the URL, which looked different than the domains that I had gone to, and they touted that you can get the pills for $1.49 a pill. Now, 
I do not know what the appropriate price for that pill is. The URLs say that they were Canadian Pharmacy something rather. And I know that people have gotten medicine outside their home country in certain circumstances. But they were looking for it and consulted on where to go get it. And the email example that I am giving here is talking about me not even looking for it. Me just getting a random email. And I got curious, so I looked, just looked. And at that particular time, it wasn't a bad thing to look. And I backed out of it. I think anything of it. But the following video talks about how he is an investigator. And all he did was get off the train and go somewhere. And he was looking at this guy's product. He was later arrested, the guy in question. And... The guy in the video telling the story says he's even bought fake things before and talks about how buying these things can now lead to organized crime, such as killing somebody or even buying things to fund other activities. And I don't believe I've ever bought anything fake. But it had made me think. It was found on the TED Talk channel of YouTube. And I think that people nowadays need to be aware of what is going on out there. I have a couple of comments I would like to bring up though in regards to a couple of the things that the gentleman says that we should do. First of all, not looking at the URL can be dangerous. Sure. But he says that if you're on the checkout page and it doesn't have the HTTPS for secure or the padlock, that it's not safe? That's not necessarily the case anymore. Security Now's Steve Gibson talks about how nowadays more and more sites are joining the secure portion of the internet because if they don't, Google, the search engine, will downgrade their website eventually to where it won't be prominent. And those who are secure will be placed more relevantly. So, fake sites are now part of the secure aspect. Looking for a contact page is definitely a good sign of whether a site is legit because they will more than likely have a way for you 
to contact the company. Sites like Amazon are legit, but contact information was hard to come by at one point. I needed to contact them for something and I found my way to get them to call me and it took a little bit of digging but the fact that they had that available was a good thing the thing that I think we need to get in everybody's head is that if you are looking for something make sure it comes from someone reputable such as Amazon and a local store that you have shopped from before I really think that where the fakes come from are merchants that you've never heard of sure in the blindness community there are companies that you may have never heard of that sell braille jewelry or blindness related products and there's always new companies coming out but you usually hear about them because they will podcast about what they're doing on a network such as Blind Bargains or another similar network. I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing. And usually they will hand out some form of contact information. And that is where you the listener and you the viewer can take pride in going up and looking at the site to determine if this is something that you would like and since more and more sites nowadays are going to go to the secure aspect including mine the tip on whether it is secure or not means nothing today. But I definitely don't just look for any handbags. There has to be something specific you're looking for. If you're looking for a handbag, you're going to do your due diligence. You're not just going to buy any handbag. And that is exactly what people need to do. If you find that the handbag isn't what you're looking for, then you wouldn't buy it. But at the same time, how are we, as people who are disabled, no matter whether we are blind, wheelchair-bound, speech-impaired, or otherwise, going to tell whether or not something is fake? First of all, in the f segment above where I was talking about 
pills, you want to make sure that you talk to your doctor first. Don't just say, oh, I have a problem. I can't get hard, so I'm going to go find pills to take care of the problem. Your doctor will advise you what you should do. in that aspect of things all right so that's the first thing and nowadays I have not seen emails in regards to those types of things as of late but they were very prominent in the 90s and early 2000s Amazon is your best bet as the years have gone on, Amazon seems to be your one-stop shop for everything, from clothes to shoes to drinks even. I remember Herbie talking about on one of his shows on 986 The Mix how he was able to find a different kind of soda, which he bought, and it was shipped to him, and he actually liked it. So I would start there. It seems like Amazon has pr pretty much taken over everybody's life. And I have something interesting about Amazon that I'd like to talk about in a little bit. But follow me here. I have never had a problem personally with Amazon. Like I said earlier, I have had an occasion where I needed to call them because I was having some sort of issue uh, with an order and I don't remember if I was trying to place one or what but uh, they explained it to me and I was able to get what I needed the other thing is that in the book Spam Nation by Brian Krebs, you will find how these particular miscreants get into business. And now a lot of the miscreants behind these fake pharmacy shops and so forth are either behind bars or they're doing something else. While the following talk was very informative, and I believe it had a January 2nd, 2018 date on it, you can't go wrong by hearing about this particular type of a story and these general knowledge tips. I think that this podcast can't say it enough where you are needing to be as careful as possible and the talk is going to be 12 minutes in length the name of the talk is how fake handbags fund terrorism and organized crime and the speaker for today this talk is Alistair Gray 
I hope that you will enjoy this talk as much as I have had listening to it and even understanding how something like this is investigated. And I think that's really why I wanted to play this is because you learn a lot about how things are done. And if you take something out of it, understand that this type of thing does have investigators involved in it. I don't know if it's going to be a bigger problem now, but I did find it of interest and I hope you do too. I'm Jared Reimer. Please enjoy the following talk. Two years ago, I set off from central London on the Tube and ended up somewhere in the east of the city, walking into a self-storage unit to meet a guy that had 2,000 luxury polo shirts for sale. And as I made my way down the corridor, a broken, blinking light made it just like the cliché scene from a gangster movie. Our man was early, and he was waiting for me in front of a unit secured with four padlocks down the side. On our opening exchange, it was like a verbal sparring match where he threw the first punches. Who was I? Did I have a business card? And where was I going to sell? And then he just started opening up. And it was my turn. Where were the polo shirts coming from? What paperwork did he have? And when was his next shipment going to arrive? I was treading the fine line between asking enough questions to get what I needed and not enough for him to become suspicious. Because what he didn't know is that I'm a counterfeit investigator. And after 20 minutes or so of checking over the product for the telltale signs of uh, counterfeit production, say, badly stitched labels or how the packaging had a huge brand logo stamped all over the front of it, I was finally on my way out. But not before he insisted on walking down to the street with me and back to the station. And the feeling after these meetings is always the same. My heart is beating like a drum. Because you never know if they've actually bought your story or they're going to start following you to see who you really are. Relief only comes when you turn the first corner and glance behind, and they're not standing there. But what I counterfeit polo shirt seller didn't realize is that everything I'd seen and heard would result in a dawn raid on his house, him being woken out of bed by eight men on his doorstep and all his products seized. But this would reveal that he was just a pawn at the end of a counterfeiting network spanning three continents, and he was just the first loose thread that I'd started to pull on in the hope that it would all unravel. Why go through all that trouble? Well, maybe counterfeiting is a victimless crime. These big companies, they make enough money, so if anything, counterfeiting is just like a free form of advertising, right? And consumers believe just that, that the buying and selling of fakes is not that big a deal. But I'm here to tell you that that is just not true. What the tourist on holiday doesn't see about those fake handbags is they may, they may well have been stitched together by a child that was trafficked away from her family. And what the car repair shop owner doesn't realize about those fake brake pads is they may well be lining the pockets of an organized crime gang involved in drugs and prostitution. And while those two things are horrible to think about, it gets much worse. Because counterfeiting is even funding terrorism. Let that sink in for a moment. Terrorists are selling fakes to fund attacks, 
attacks in our cities that try to make victims of all of us. You wouldn't buy a live scorpion because there's a chance that it would sting you on the way home. But would you still buy a fake handbag if you knew that the profits would enable someone to buy bullets that would kill you and other innocent people six months later? Maybe not. Okay, time to come clean. In my youth, yeah, I might look like I'm still clinging on to it a bit, <laughs> I bought fake watches while on holiday in the Canary Islands. But why do I tell you this? Well, we've all done it. Or we know someone that's done it. And until this very moment, maybe you didn't think twice about it. And nor did I, until I answered a 20-word cryptic advert to become an intellectual property investigator. It said, full training given and some international travel. Within a week, I was creating my first of many aliases. And in the 10 years since, I've investigated fake car parts, alloy wheels, fake pet grooming tools, fake bicycle parts, and of course, the counterfeiter's favorite, fake luxury leather goods, clothing and shoes. And what I've learned in the 10 years of investigating fakes is that once you start to scratch the surface, you find that they are rotten to the core, as are the people and organizations that are making money from them, because they are profiting on a massive, massive scale. You can only make around 100 to 200 percent selling drugs on the street. You can make 2,000 percent selling fakes online with little of the same risks or penalties. And this quick, easy money then goes on to fund the more serious types of crime, and it pays the way to making these organizations, these criminal organizations, look more legitimate. So let me bring you in on a live case. Earlier this year, a series of raids took place in one of my longest-running investigations. Five warehouses were raided in Turkey, and over two million finished counterfeit clothing products were seized, and it took 16 trucks to take that all away. But this gang had been clever. They'd gone to the lengths of creating their own fashion brands, complete with registered trademarks and even having photo shoots on yachts in Italy. And they would use these completely unheard of and unsuspicious brand names as a way of shipping container loads of fakes to shell companies that they'd set up across Europe. And documents found during those raids found that they'd been falsifying shipping documents so that customs officials would literally have no idea who had sent the products in the first place. When police got access to just one bank account, they found nearly three million euros had been laundered out of Spain in less than two years. And just two days after those raids, that gang were trying to bribe a law firm to get their stock back. Even now, we have no idea where all that money went to who it went to, but you can bet it's never going to benefit the likes of you or me. But these aren't just low-level street thugs. They're business professionals and they fly first class. They trick legitimate businesses with convincing fake invoices and paperwork, so everything just seems real. And then they set up eBay and Amazon accounts just to compete with the people they've already sold fakes to. But this isn't just happening online. For a few years, I also used to attend um, automotive trade shows, taking place in huge exhibition spaces. But away from the Ferraris and the Bentleys and the flashing lights, there'd be companies selling fakes. Companies with a brochure on the counter and another one underneath if you ask them the right questions. And they would sell me fake car parts, 40 fake car parts that have been estimated to cause over 36,000 fatalities, deaths on our roads each year. Counterfeiting is set to become a $2.3 trillion 
underground economy. And the damage that can be done with that kind of money, it's really frightening. Because fakes fund terror. Fake trainers on the streets of Paris. Fake cigarettes in West Africa. And pirate music CDs in the USA have all gone on to fund trips to training camps. Bought weapons and ammunition, or the ingredients for explosives. In June 2014, the French security services stopped monitoring the communications of Saeed and Sharif Kouachi. The two brothers had been on a watch list, a terror watch list, for three years. But that summer, they were only picking up that Sharif was buying fake trainers from China. So it signaled a shift away from extremism into what was considered a low-level petty crime. The threat had gone away. Seven months later, the two brothers walked into the offices of Charlie Hebdo magazine and killed 12 people, wounded 11 more, with guns bought from the proceeds of those fakes. So whatever you think, this isn't a faraway problem happening in China. It's happening right here. And Paris was not unique. Ten years earlier, in 2004, 191 people lost their lives when a Madrid commuter train was bombed. The attack had been partly funded by the sale of pirate music CDs in the US. Two years prior to that, an Al-Qaeda training manual recommended explicitly selling fakes is a good way of supporting terror cells. But despite this, despite the evidence connecting terrorism and counterfeiting, we do go on buying them, increasing the demand to the point where there's even a store in Turkey called I Love Genuine Fakes. And you have tourists posing with photographs on TripAdvisor, giving it five-star reviews. But would those same tourists have gone into a store called I Love Genuine Fake Viagra Pills? Or I Genuinely Love Funding Terrorism? I doubt it. Many of us think that we're completely helpless against organized crime and terrorism, that we can do nothing about the next attack. But I believe you can. You can by becoming investigators too. The way we cripple these networks is to cut their funding, and that means cutting the demand and changing this idea that it's a victimless crime. Let's all identify counterfeiters and don't give them our money. So here's a few tips from one investigator to another to get you started. Number one, here's a typical online counterfeiter's website. Note the URL. If you're shopping for sunglasses or camera lenses, say, and you come across a website like medicalinsurancebankruptcy.com, start to get very suspicious. <laughs> But counterfeiters register expired domain names as a way of keeping up the old website's Google page ranking. Number two, is the website screaming at you that everything is 100% genuine, but still giving you 75% of the latest collection? Look for words like master copy, overruns, straight from the factory. They could write this all in Comic Sans, it's that much of a joke. Number three, if you get as far as the checkout page and you don't see HTTPS or a padlock symbol next to the URL, you should really start thinking about closing the tab, because these indicate active security measures that will keep your personal and credit card information safe. Okay, last one. Go hunting for the Contact Us page. If you can only find a generic web form, no company name, telephone number, email address, postal address, that's it. Case closed. You found a counterfeiter. Sadly, you're going to have to go back to Google and start your shopping search all over again, but you didn't get ripped off, so that's only a good thing. 
As the world's most famous fictional detective would say, Watson, the game is afoot. Only this time, my investigator friends, the game is painfully real. So the next time you're shopping online, or perhaps wherever it is, look closer, question that little bit deeper, and ask yourself before you hand over the cash or click buy, am I sure this is real? Tell your friend that used to buy counterfeit watches that he may just have brought the next attack one day closer. And if you see an Instagram advert for fakes, don't keep scrolling past. Report it to the platform as a scam. Let's shine a light on the dark forces of counterfeiting that are hiding in plain sight. So please spread the word, and don't stop investigating. Thank you. Opportunity and talk about an article that my dad sent me, and I also posted a link to this on my own tech blog. And this was quite interesting, I think. Although, I honestly don't think why our own devices in our home should be doing things like booking us rides. I could see it more as a convenience, not as a I have to have. And this article is entitled Why Amazon's Alexa is life-changing for the blind. Now, first of all, I don't think it's life-changing. I can open my app and I can order an Uber if it is the right thing for me to do such as if it's raining and it is to the point where it's not safe to take the bus even though the bus is running and I did not book a paratransit ride because I know personally that paratransit can keep you in a car for hours on end Even though it should take you half an hour to an hour to get home, it can take almost two hours to get home. But I'm not going to make this discussion just on paratransit alone. In a way, I wish paratransit would be more efficient by having an app or a way to book online just like Uber does. Uber has an app. Lyft has an app. Pair Transit should have a way to do this online. Not necessarily an app per se, but maybe logging into their portal, wherever that may be, depending on your Pair Transit company, and booking it through that way. And if there is a conflict then 
they will send you an email. And, of course, following standard booking rules, at least here in L.A., you have to respond by 10 o'clock at, at night to verify what you want. I'm not going to say any commands in here in case people are listening to this around their devices. But I can open my phone and tell it to book a ride for me. Now today I don't need to go anywhere and I don't need to do that. But I can just tell my phone to open Uber or I can tell my phone to book an Uber trip from this location to that location. I believe iOS allows me to do that. I don't remember but I am just as independent as someone who can ask their Alexa device to go ahead and take care of something for them. Now, there are some benefits I could find with the Alexa device, such as setting timers if I'm in the kitchen cooking or if it was my own Alexa, I could have it remind me about things. But then again, so can I do that with my phone? 1537. And for example, I'll have it play my reminders that I have set for me for specific things. Play my reminders. I found seven reminders, all scheduled, no bowling, on Wednesday at 1800 hours, an independent artist spotlight show, on Thursday at 1800 hours, broadcast 147, backup 986 Demix site, on February 7th, 2018 at 1600 hours, broadcast 28 of the independent artist spotlight, do you want to hear the remaining two? No. So... I know that on a couple of those I misspelled things and it's also dated so uh, no bowling actually is a two week thing um, because I'm it's reminding me that I don't have to go I actually just got called about that today but that's okay uh, I'm in a league and the person called me to let me know that they aren't going to be able to make it and uh, other ones are dealing with removing shows off of 986 The Mix. Now, I could see myself in the kitchen if I had my own Alexa device to have me reminded about things and setting timers and such. But I don't honestly see a benefit of having multiples of these. One prominent person in the blindness community is Michael May. And he was mentioned in this article saying that it is 
easy for me to just ask it to book an Uber for me. And it takes care of that for me. And I find that easy. And sure, it's easy. But, as I said, I can do it on my phone. Sure, Alexa would have to know the various places that you would be going to. Or it would need to be able to look that up. And I'm sure that it does a great job with it. And I'm not sitting here bashing the article. I'm just questioning why it has to be a blindness thing. What if Mike May wasn't blind? What if he was fully sighted and ran a blindness company? You know, I could actually see him still using Alexa or any other device that is capable of booking rides for him as more of a convenience, not as a necessity. And maybe I'm reading into this article the wrong way. But Alexa, to me, is something to play with, right? So I played with it a little bit. I've got the app on my phone. Um, it's got some nice things on it. You know, you can use it to convert things in case you don't have your phone. And it's got a lot of skills it can learn and you can put on your account. And it's got a nice looking app. Let's take a look at the app. I don't care about my alerts right now. I've turned off Do Not Disturb. Oh, it's there. I thought, it, I, thought I shoved it in my social folder, but I didn't. So, it's going to load here. I haven't launched it in a while, so it's probably got stuff to go update. But the app itself is kind of cool. Alright, so get started. Help Alexa get to know you. Help Alexa get to know you. Personalize your experience and connect with friends and family. So I have gone ahead and went through it wouldn't let me continue without telling it who I was, and I am using my dad's account with his permission, but I am not gonna give it my contacts on my phone. So I went ahead and told it for now to skip it because I am not going to use it for that purpose because that Alexa device is in the kitchen and I can easily call my own people off my own phone. Alexa, what can you do? Get tips on things to try. Alexa, tell me a ninja joke. Alexa, tell me a ninja joke. Alexa, how do I say how are you in Spanish? Translate English words and short phrases. Alexa, play music like Usher and ask for similar songs and artists. Alexa, who's your favorite actor? So now it's got a screen telling me... Alexa, what can you do? Get tips on things to try. Learn more link. Weather in Woodland Hills, CA. 
um, what it can do. And here's the weather for Woodland Hills. Matthewweather.com. 72 degrees. Tuesday, January 2nd, 2018. Pleasant with times of sun and clouds. Air quality will be unhealthy for sensitive groups. High 80 degrees slash low 54 degrees. Oh, so this is the second, so... Real feel, 70 degrees. Wind, and 4.6 miles. Precipitation, 0%. Wednesday, January 3rd, high of 75 degrees, low of 55 degrees. This is Page three of out of date. Pleasant with sunshine and... Monday, January, pleasant with sunshine. Page four of... Page, page six of seven. Image. More. Browse Amazon Music and Limited Link. Image. Chicago. Chicago. Track by highly suspect. Image. More. Browse Amazon Music. Tracks from your library. Shuffle Music. Page four of... Wednesday, January 3rd. High of seven. Thursday, Jan Friday, January 5th. High of... Saturday. More. Image. Shuffle Music. Tracks from your library. Browse Amazon Music and Limited Link. So this is on this particular account. More. Selected. Home. Communications. Now playing. Communications. But the app. Button. Drop it. Button. Neil Reimer. Look up I M M U. Symbol on the stock market. October 9th, 2017. Alexa needs access to your phone's contacts to help you call and message your friends and family with Alexa. To provide access, tap settings. For pull to refresh, double tap and hold. Then swipe down. Actions available. Alright, well I'm not going to do that, but it shows me the last thing that was done. Selected. Communications. Now playing. Control. Now playing. Control music on your devices. Selected. Home. Settings. Button. Alexa needs access to your phone's new rhymer. Look up. Drop in. Button. I see message new default dark. Button. Contacts. Button. Conversations. Heading. Contacts. 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 Amazon Alexa would like to access your contacts. Upload your contacts to the Amazon. Don't allow. Button. I'm not going to allow it because Amazon it's my Alexa. phone and his account. Barry Altmark. Brittany Brody. Carl Hunt. Carol Francis. So I'm just tapping here just to see what's here. And it does have contacts of various kinds. I did not go any further than that, but wanted to just see what was up, and I didn't give it any of my contacts from my phone, but it is prepared for those changes if it were my Alexa device. You can see that the app has got stuff, and my goal wasn't to demo it at all. My goal was to launch it to see what we could do and I know you can add skills and you could do a bunch of other stuff from the app right now it wanted me to add my own contacts which I did not want to do at all because first of all it's not my device I wanted to look at the app to see what it could do um, and um, that is what it is now, this is all well and good. And with the right skills, I could see the Alexa app help me. But the way the article was touting itself, it was, oh, I've got, you know, 
10 of these various devices and no matter where I am, I could ask it to do things for me. I was like, well, okay. I think that's pushing it a little far. But personally, if my phone is easily accessible to me and I needed a ride, why can't I tell it what I need? It's closer to me anyway. Unless your phone's not available and you're still getting ready, but you know the ride's going to be five or ten minutes. But each person's going to be different, and that's what makes it great. Can it assist us? Yes. But I don't believe that it can do everything for us yet. Yes, it could probably read a book that you have in your library and so forth. And... It can do a lot of stuff like that. And I would not qualify it as a replacement for doing things on your phone. I personally think it's an assistant that can help. And I think that's what we need to call it. Something that we can use to help us. And maybe I have read it all wrong. But I'm curious on your thoughts if you've read the article. Am I off base? Is this something I am blowing out of proportion? Please let me know. I would be happy to hear what you have to say. I'd say that we had a pretty packed podcast, lots of various topics, including a couple of videos that might get people to think. This is what my podcast originally was going to be. Find things of interest to talk about, put different twists on things, and hey, you never know. Maybe we'll have a discussion on it by having people comment on what they hear. I think I've done that with this podcast, and yes... I know I've already released one, but it's time to release another one. How do you think of that? I hope to have more podcasts soon, and again, I'm going to try and get back into the writing thing, where I would like to really get into this Kansas thing and my thoughts, but I don't exactly know how to write it up. It is so bizarre. Maybe I'll wait and see what the next thing brings. But in the meantime, I know there'll be plenty of writing, plenty of podcasts, and plenty of things to check out. My email address and iMessage is tech at m-e-n-v-i dot o-r-g. Text or WhatsApp 804-442-6975. And remember, you may also call 818-921-4976 if you wish to place a call. Until next podcast, I'm Jared Reimer. Thanks so much for listening and make it a great day.